How you doing, Ted? Fantastic, brother. How about you? I'm doing great, man. Doing really good. I like that mic. Thank you. This is about the only professional thing I got going for me right now. Really? <laughs> <laughs> you sound like me. Yeah, I've actually, uh, I was, I, I bought like, you know, one of those uh, lighting things to put on my, on my computer. So I, cause I'm, I'm probably like you, I'm doing a lot of zoom meetings and stuff. And, um, yeah. I was always getting washed out and stuff like that. And plus like once every Monday, there's this big, like 70 people zoom meeting we do every Monday. And, you know, they all look so fancy and cool. So I thought I'd get me a, a, a light and a nice setup. Yeah. And it was great for about seven weeks. Um, and then one of the buttons doesn't work anymore. So now I've had to put a sticky note on top of the light to get the lighting about right because it's too bright otherwise, because I have no down button. I just have up. You're, you're just, blinded. You're like this. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so it's just, it's ridiculous. I mean, I can't believe how hard, you know, this, I mean, it's, you know, I got what I paid for. Like, I'll just leave it at that. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, you're just testing it out. You're not going to exactly. get the fanciest thing in the world, right? What I want to do, I'll let me quickly just sort of go over yeah. what we're going to kind of sure. talk about. I didn't give you any kind of heads up on purpose, um, primarily because I think I it's a lot that easier. Was a Ted, I yeah. think that was a Ted thing. Yeah, I love it. So, um, you know, we'll talk about how your transition from being an OD to what you're doing now has been, we'll kind of get you to tell your origin story, but we'll talk about how your career developed and, um, your transition from being an optometrist, practicing optometrist to being an optometrist that does things for optometrists, um, where you kind of get your ideas. I'd like to talk about how, you know, about the art of the deal, because that's something that none of us really do on a regular basis. Uh, we'll dig into that a little bit and we'll probably get way off track somewhere along the way. And we won't talk about any of this. <laughs> it's all that's, that's when it's more genuine and authentic. It, that's it's right. A lot better. I agree. That's right. Welcome to the Vision of Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Ted McElroy. This podcast is dedicated to helping you find your wins, have a better quality of life, and become the best leader you can be. Hey, have you subscribed to this podcast yet? Don't miss an episode. They're worth every single thing you paid for them, which is nothing because they're free. I invite you to subscribe to the podcast by hitting the subscribe button. Give us a rating and a review on your specific podcast player. This helps us with our podcast rankings and makes it easier for people to find us. And as always, please support those who help support us. episode 102 of this podcast, Chris interviewed Justin Kwan, Michelle Andrews, and Richard Ruth. They pointed out that as a profession, we have done a great job of letting our patients know that myopia is not a big deal. If you can see 2020, there is no worry. It is the high myopes that are more danger. And as they said, that message is tragic. Any myopia has a higher risk of maculopathy, glaucoma, and earlier cataract development. In the MySight one-day clinical trials, only 4% of study participants who got ProClear one-days stayed stable in their myopia progression over the three-year period. That means you can confidently say, parent, by not going to a system geared to slow the myopia progression, there is a 96% chance your child's vision will get worse. This may take away some of the choice your child has in the future as to how they will correct their vision. Choice not fear of the disease associations with myopia is what best resonates with parents when it comes to myopia control for their children. And with Cooper Vision's MySight One Day, we now have an FDA-approved single-use contact lens to lessen the progression of myopia in our patients. Contact your Cooper Vision representative to find out more about MySight One Day contact lenses. Welcome to the Vision Leadership Podcast. I'm Ted McElroy, and today I have a really special guest for me. Uh, someone who I got to know uh, through a dear friend of mine, which some of you heard a few weeks ago, Amir Kashneves. I'm getting to now speak with his brother, Ali. Um, Ali has had a very different route 
through his career than a lot of us in optometry have had. And in fact, uh, he kind of mixes the worlds that I have uh, with what I do, speaking with a lot of optometrists, but also talking about all other business leaders who have nothing to do with eye care. His stuff still has to do with eye care, but it's a way different way of doing it. So Allie, uh, welcome to the podcast. I'm thrilled to have you here today. Oh, Ted, I appreciate you having me. It's wonderful to spend some time with you. I, I was thinking back as I was getting ready to do this about we, when we first met, I know it had something to do with Amir, um, you know, and, and from that point, it's still kind of, you live in the shadow of your brother, you know, and we've, we, we you and I and Mike have made jokes about, you know, the, the comments people sometimes make. And so have people stopped confusing you with Amir yet? <laughs> um, I haven't reached that, that, uh, status yet, if you will, <laughs> Ted, it's, uh, they're big shoes to fill, a big shadow to be behind. And uh, I love it because it, it makes me, you know, he makes me work harder every day. He makes me care more every day. And it's just wonderful to be able to look up to someone like that and see what Amir's done and how much he cares. Like that, that's the word that continuously comes to my mind. I think uh, he has a profound love for our profession. And he wants to make sure he does whatever he does to, to always keep it, uh, you know, a good profession and from the heart. And so it's, it's just, it's just a beautiful thing to, to look up to someone like that. And I think though, that now that things have kind of developed for you, I'm also wondering how many times now the opposite is happening, that they're confusing him for you. Because I bet it's happening a lot more often than, oh, I'm sure it has been happening a lot more often, especially now that y'all are sporting the beard now, you know, that's uh, definitely getting, this is, the, this is the COVID uh, beer that never went away from me. Um, yeah. I, I don't know. I mean, maybe Amir could, could share a little bit more, but I, I'd like to think that uh, I'm still getting confused for Amir a lot more. You know, I, I oftentimes get on calls with people that, you know, think that they're about to talk to Amir and they're like, yeah, we, we spent some time together in Charlotte. And I'm always, I always have this grin on my face. Cause I'm like, I think you're talking about Amir and they're like, Oh, okay. Is that your brother? And I'm like, yeah. So <laughs> it, it happens all the time, Ted. It's crazy. I just it's prefer kinda... to call myself Amir's brother. Uh, well, you know, the funny thing about it is I have heard him of late refer to himself as Ali's brother. Uh, you know, so I'm, I'm not, and I'm not just uh, saying that. I mean, he, and believe me, uh, the respect the two of you have for each other is just wonderful to see because it's, it's definitely love. Uh, no doubt about it. I've never seen two brothers that love each other as much as you two do. And it's just amazing. Um, it's, it's great. It really truly is. That's beautiful. Thank you. Um, so what I do want to do is spend a little time telling your origin story. How did you you know, get to where you are in your career, because it's not this typical route of a typical optometrist. No, it's not. Um, you know, I don't know how far to go back, but I, I think you, you set the stage when talking about my brother and, and, and my sister as well, who, who's also an optometrist and, uh, you know, both of them, they, they went down this path together almost. They were in optometry school together. And I used to look up to them, obviously, because I'm 10 years younger than Amir and 12 years younger than my sister. So, you know, you can imagine uh, they were in school, let's say they were 22, 23 years old. I was 10 years old watching my sister, you know, become a doctor. And then my, so, you know, and then you, you may, the, the, the listeners may know about my father who's an OBGYN. So we sort of have this, you know, everyone has to be a doctor kind of mentality in our family. So that that's always challenging, as you can imagine, Ted, because your your mom and dad are constantly saying, you got to go and become a doctor. You have to be a doctor. I don't care what you what you want to do. You have to be a doctor. And so, you know, we all went down that path. But for me, it was always looking up to my brother and sister and saying, geez, you know, they're doing some great things. I'd love to work with them. I'd love to be in practice with them. We had a, we had an optometry family in our town, the Covingtons, and it was two brothers that had a 
beautiful practice in our small town and took wonderful care of the people in our in our little you know small town in North Carolina and we all really looked up to them I'm sure Amir may have shared about that but um, you know seeing seeing that family I was I was inclined to become an optometrist because I wanted to do the same thing with my brother and sister you know my my I had this fantasy that I we would open up a practice together and you know, always work side and side by side like the Covingtons did. So, you know, it's it's been a wonderful journey for me. I'm very grateful that my parents pushed me to do that. Although while I was doing it, I had I was sort of rebellious in a way. I wanted to do my own thing. I wanted to go to business school when I was at Carolina. I wanted to become an entrepreneur, but it never stopped me you know, being an optometrist never stopped me from trying to fulfill that dream, which is kind of neat. You know, I never, I never gave up on that idea for myself. Yeah. So you, you go to optometry school, you come back to North Carolina, you go into practice. Um, you did, you, were you in with Amir for a little bit? Uh, I think you guys were trying to work something a little bit and, um, and and then, uh, you, you happened upon an, uh, something that really kind of bothered you. You you weren't real thrilled about how your guests were having to come out of pocket for all this money for their drugs and stuff to pay for their drugs. Yeah, yeah you're, you're right, Ted. You know, I, I came out of school, joined Amir uh, in practice. I went to Bascom Palmer and did my residency. You know, I had this ambition of, you know, really – uh, working in underserved areas. That was something that was near and dear to my heart. And when I came out, you know, Amir has a, just a wonderful practice and has, you know, a wide range of patients. And I was really enjoying it because, you know, he had still glaucoma patients, but then I could learn about the latest and greatest in contact lens. And I was able to flex all the, the different muscles that I've learned in school and my training and you're right. There was a there was a patient of ours. It was Amir's patient early on in his career, and just stayed with Amir. And, and a lot of patients, like you and Amir's patients, stick around forever. Uh, they never want to leave your side. And and this gentleman, you know, we Amir and I, we both spent time with him, and he was taking a lot of generic drugs. And at the time, this is 2010. Walmart had their big four dollar generic list, and my assumption, and I think a lot of doctors' assumption at that time, was that all generic drugs are four dollars. You can just go get go to the CVS program or the Walgreens or the Walmart program and get your meds for four dollars. Well, this gentleman, his health was declining every time he came in. Every time we looked in the back of his eyes, his retinopathy was worse, and we we just couldn't wrap our heads around it until we had that frank conversation. We sat down with him and we said, look, what, what, what's going on? And he shared with us that it's, unfortunately, it's very expensive to take the meds he's on. He's not offered insurance through his employer. So he's basically paying out of pocket for his medications. And at that time we did a, Amir and I just picked up the phone because Amir said, you know what? One of my patients came in, was taking the generic October decks and told me it was 60 bucks. And then the next guy told me it was 150. And I, I, I wonder if his meds have the same issue. So it was a, it was the generic of Lipitor. We called a bunch of places and it went from 150 down to $11. And they were all within a mile. These pharmacies were within a mile of each other. And this is, you know, before good RX and everything. So that really led us down a path of saying, you know, what can we do and not not even too long after having this interaction with this gentleman, he he actually passed away from a massive stroke. And that was that was the real, you know, you talk about inertia to, to move something to really change the course of action that you're on. It takes a lot of force. That was the force that we that, that pushed us into really trying to solve this problem. And that was, that was our first venture. I mean, there was a, you know, I call that the school of hard knocks, you know, two brothers getting to go and pitch in front of, you know, senators in New York. I mean, in uh, DC, when we went to reboot America and, uh, 
you know, the founder of AOL inviting us there and just, just a really amazing journey, but learned a whole lot about how to build a, a company, an organization. And that was almost like a school for us, if you will. So what really came out of WeRx at that point? I mean, you, you take it for four years, you, you, you get it to the point. And next thing you know, there's this other thing that pops up very similar, almost the same name kind of seems a little weird. And, <laughs> you know, at the point of adversity, I mean, what do you, what do you do from there? It's funny. I remember, I remember we were pitching at uh, Reboot America in DC and um, I think a Health 2.0 had a conference and at that conference, they announced five, you know, emerging companies that they're really excited about. This is a big event in San Francisco and one of them's called GoodRx and I watched the pitch and I said, I, I, I looked at Amir and I said, dude, there's a company coming out that is doing exactly what we're trying to do. And it's founded by a former Facebook employee, a first Facebook employee. And, um, and Hamir just looked at me and, you know, this is the idea. There's no original thought. I mean, there's a lot of, you know, science and theory around this fact that if you have an idea, it's germinating somewhere else in the world, in the universe. And uh, it's amazing. I got to see that in my own personal life firsthand. These guys were, these guys have had a startup before. They were Facebook guys. One of them, um, one of the, I mean, the two CEOs are my friends. Actually, I just talked to Trevor the other day, um, you know, about a, a different project that I'm working on to get some advice. So it's just, it's really neat how the world works. You know, we, we, we RX is still live. It's still there. Um, you know, it's, it's helping people. We know it's being utilized, but not at the level, obviously that good RX is, but we're, we're still really proud of that. And it means a lot to us. And it's sort of our first baby. And it's still a mission that we, we, you know, we, we have, a profound feeling for, and uh, we want to keep it alive as long as we can. Well, I think it's really impressive that the relationships that you build out with these other guys who are your competition, you know, our society today looks at competition as almost a zero sum game. And yet you guys turn this thing almost, I don't want to say it's a collaboration, but it, but there are some collaborative efforts that are going out of it. How do you turn this into a collaboration? Yeah, it was funny when I, I called, uh, I called Doug and Trevor, their co-CEOs. And I said, look, I said, gentlemen, you know, we love what you're doing. And, and certainly you, you're more successful at it. And you've been able to reach more people than we have. And I just want to, I just want to reach out and say hello and, and congratulate you guys. Cause this is a mission that's, it was passion. It was passion for us. And to see them do that. And I truly believe that they're doing good work in the world. And these are good guys. Trust me when you talk to them, Ted, they're, they're you know, their organization's worth 4 billion, 3 billion. And they're just, they'll have a conversation with you like you and I, and that they're very mission oriented too. Now they, that, you know, he invited me to come to Santa Monica. They have a high rise there. And I went into the office and sat down with them and, what came out of that was they were, you know, considering buying WeRx. They said, let, let us, let us buy WeRx. We're not going to change the mission. We're not going to change anything like that. We want to be able to try something new with WeRx, a new uh, process that we're trying to bring to fruition. And we don't want to do it under the good RX banner because it might confuse consumers. So after a, a lot of conversations, the board decided that, you know, they didn't, they didn't want, you know, good RX to, to have to own two entities. And so that, that didn't come to fruition, but let me tell you, those guys, you know, I reach out to them. They re return my, you know, email in a second. <laughs> it's amazing. And they're just really good people. And I've just enjoyed the, the time of getting to know. And to me, to like, to bring back this point, for us, it was always, it was never a competition more than it was uh, two organizations with a similar mission. And they've 
you know, the, the latest studies show that when a drug is expensive, it's left at the pharmacy. When it gets more than $50, 50% of the time, it's left at the pharmacy. And I truly believe that GoodRx and WeRx, to a smaller degree, has put a dent in that number. And, and, and so if someone's using that and their drug goes from $70 to $35, they're picking it up. And that's, that's a beautiful thing for me uh, to know, especially these being a needed drug for diabetes or hypertension. We all know what happens when you don't take those meds. So it's been a, it's been a cool experience. So let's dig in a little bit into the no original thoughts, because I agree with you. I, I, you know, um, I think that, uh, you know, original thought is, is, a uh, almost hubris if you want to you know call it that i mean you have yeah. a lot of pride yeah. in the in saying i have an original thought when actually yeah. somebody else probably put that in there for you so you know how how and i'm sure with what you guys do on a regular basis there's a lot of this belief oh i've got an original oh. idea going around so how do you disavow yourself of believing that you have no original thought yeah i do i i coach a lot of entrepreneurs you know here and there that come to me for advice and uh it's funny. A lot of them are very, very, they're, they want to hold all their ideas to their chest. They don't want to talk to anyone about it. They're like, no, if I tell people they're going to copy it and this and that and the other. And I said, look, it's, it's okay. At some point you got to come out with it because then no one's going to know what you're doing and no one's going to consume it. Right. So it's all about execution. It's not about the idea. I, you know, I tell people what, what's the greatest the greatest inventions in the world, they, they are, they're in some ways, you can think of them as perfect. They have not been innovated on. Think about the wheel. Nobody's like, yes, this is a different one. Yeah, it changes slightly. Or a chair that you sit on. No one thinks a chair is an innovation. That's an innovation. It has not changed at all in probably thousands of years. And so, um, you know, innovation is, is, is very rare. It is a very rare thing to have an innovative idea. What you have is evolutionary ideas that just sort of is a slightly different version of something that is almost perfect. And so, you know, that, that's the whole premise. I also think that, you know, for me, there's been a there's been a lot of things that have been fortuitous. Like they they've just come to me, and I, I don't mean like I've had the best ideas in the world or anything like that. But I really just sat down and one day someone said, "Let's have a let's have a coffee, Ali." And next thing I know, I'm trying to build something. And I think it, it and in my lifetime, that's always been the case. So it, it's never come, you know. I guess it's come through me is that the feeling that I, I really have about that stuff. Like, I, I think I've known it all along or it was something that was meant to be for me or, or something to that effect. So I, I never think that I have the, the greatest ideas. I'm just a guy that is trying to execute on something that I believe in. So do you think the ideas come to you pretty easily? I mean, do you, where do you get your inspiration? Oh, no. what, how, I mean, how do you go through this process? That that's the thing that I never, I've never been, there's a book that was written. I can't remember the gentleman's name, um, but it's about, it's this, I, this Goldilocks idea and this flow where the premise is that if you slow the brain waves, you sit in a hot tub, ideas will come to you, things like this. I, I never really, those were never my cup of tea. Um, there's also this idea of like, you know, this Goldilocks finding that perfect fitting bed or idea. You, you, you try one that's hard, one that's too soft. And then you come to this, this perfect one that puts you in flow. Um, honest to goodness, I've always just kept my heart open and, uh, I just been open to listening and hearing things. And it, it, if it comes to me, it comes, but I never was the type to say, let me sit down and meditate and hopefully something pops into my head. I don't know. It, it, it to me, it just felt it, everything that's come to me has come natural. I've never tried to do anything. I've never said, let me practice this type of yoga position. Maybe it'll bring a, an innovative 
thought to my mind, but I know some people believe in that. And I think whatever works for you. So do you just find yourself just naturally inquisitive? I mean, I, I guess, I mean, do you catch yourself saying, I wonder what if, or have you ever thought about, I mean, is that a common phrase that pops out of your mouth? (laughs) I don't think so. It's weird. (laughs) It's weird to say, it's, it's so weird to say that Ted, because I think the best product people I've ever met in my life. I mean, product people use something called design thinking principles. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and for, for the listeners that may not know design thinking, it's this idea that you go into somewhere and you just observe the mess out of it. You, you see how people interact with it, how they touch it, how they play with it, what they're currently doing, what problems they face. And these people are incredibly inquisitive. And they're always asking those questions that you talked about. But I think that's about shaping an idea. But really the premise is, you know, do you feel something inside of you that is profoundly wrong with what's going on currently? And I mean, I said that feel something inside of you, not necessarily observe it, but feel it. And all of the all of the things that have come into my life, all the products that I've been a part of were things that I profoundly felt were fundamental problems. Like it touched me. When, when this gentleman came into our office, I was moved. I was touched. My heart hurt. When I, when, you know, when, when I started uh, other organizations that I, I've been a part of, I was profoundly moved by something and, uh, and, and, you know, I've tried things where, where that wasn't the case. And, and I, I've honest to goodness, Ted, those things failed. Those were the ones where I was like, I wonder if my, you know, you know, if, if I can make a better EHR for my practice and I tried to do something like that. And I don't think that I, I did a very good job with it. Was that kind of where smart triage is that how that, where that idea was or it, it, that one, that one came after I actually, I actually built something, uh, called Plano and it was, a, it, it's an, it's an all in one sort of EHR. It had the charting, it had the, uh, you know, the, everything, the recalls, the reminders and, uh, smart triage, you know, I don't, I can't recall exactly how that came to us. I just remember I was at a conference in Orlando, the HIMSS conference. That's a big healthcare information conference. I was seeing all these things around and um, it occurred to me at that time, this was 2014, 13, 14. No one was really talking about artificial intelligence, but there was this idea that, you know, in the future, doctors are going to have help from computers to make decisions. So clinical support tools and whatnot. And smart triage was something that in, in practice was something that really profoundly bothered me when I was in Amir's practice. Uh, even some of the other things that I've done in practice, not know a patient, not know, or us not knowing why patients coming in, they come in with a red eye, but they think they just want contact lenses and that will improve the red eye. That was, that was something that continuously bothered me every day. Um, and so that, that idea came out of there, but, uh, you know, I think that those things were in the grand scheme of things smaller for me than the things that profoundly moved me, if that makes any sense. Yeah, it does. So it sounds like a lot of your invention, a lot of your, wonder if you will comes out of your empathy more than anything else uh, it's what it sounds I think like that's pretty i think it's that that's a very fair statement um okay so what's bothering you right now <laughs> blindness okay i think I, I think for me right now the biggest thing that and the thing that i'm you know actively thinking about is did you know that 95% and I'm not talking about refractive error, but 95, that that's a big piece, right? But 95% of blindness is preventable. There's 5% like your, your star guards and your RP and some of these congenital and hereditary conditions that 
soon we will be able to solve. But just simply like a, a diabetic patient coming in, well, if they come in before they have PDR or something, we can just do a simple procedure and they'll never go blind. And so I think, you know, being able to be on the front end of that is what's really exciting me right now. Like, how do you get in front of that issue? And, and you think, oh, well, in Latin America or in, in, in Africa or the Middle East or these other places, that's happening more than it's happening here because they don't have access. But as you and I know very well, Ted, that in the retina, it's usually asymptomatic. There's no pain. There's no suffering. There's no even vision loss sometimes until it's too late. So just that's, that's profoundly bothering me right now. And uh, it's something that I'd like to do anything I can to put a small dent into it. Yeah. I mean, we, we brought in some new technology to the office to allow us to get a much earlier detection of macro degeneration. I'm sure lots of you know about AdaptDX and things like that. And um, it's been a hard thing to implement in our practice. And part of it has been some actually serious, uh, more instrument issues that they're now replacing our instrument for. So thanks to them, they're going to get that taken care of. But the part that has been a problem is just us implementing the system. And I think part of it is because there hasn't really been this why it's just, here's this machine that's just getting in my way of us getting the exam done, you know, is what they keep saying, you know? And so yesterday, no Wednesday, we had our office meeting and we were again talking about the adapt DX and why it wasn't getting done like it was supposed to. And I said, you know, here's what it comes down to. I don't want to have a conversation like I had to have with patient X yesterday um, because she's been seeing me for 15 years. And 15 years ago, mm. her retinas didn't look like they do right now. Now, mm. I might not have been able to do something for her 15 years ago when she was 70. Um, but if I had been able to have this information when she was 60 or 50, I could have done right. that. And I wouldn't have yeah. to have this conversation that I had to have with her yesterday that there's nothing else I can do except watch it. Yeah. And that just like you, it bothers me. Um, it, it really bothers me. And I, I think me telling that story, I could start seeing now it started bothering somebody else in the room besides me. And I think that's where it really comes mm. into changing things. Yeah. That's beautiful story, by the way. I think if most practitioners can look at it from that perspective and be a leader in, in, in their organizations and say, it's not a nuisance. This is, let me tell you a story about, because every, every, I think every eye care professional in the world has that story. Like I, I went in to help a friend out the other day and there was a 45 year old guy that came in and he was completely cuffed out. He thought he needed glasses. He's like, my friends told me when I get 45, I'm going to need glasses. And he was completely cupped out and i'm thinking geez if he would have if i would have seen him five or ten years ago what would have been the difference here so those are those are big big problems and um they're problems that every single one of us face and we we know we we can even pinpoint the exact person and say if i would have seen this person earlier i mean it's this is a this is a, a story that hopefully bothers every eye care professional. And, uh, and I think there's, you know, when, when, when you actually think through it and you talk about a story like the one you shared with your staff members and everyone in the office, there's the change. I think immediately there's going to be an impact. I can guarantee you. So you're, you're getting these fantastic ideas. You're getting these products you're putting together sooner or later, you got to get some, help with somebody else from, you know, and you're going to look into different areas. Maybe it's just colleagues or maybe it's people who are outside of our profession completely. I think this is where, I mean, you've dealt with angel investors and private equity and all sorts of different type of funding characteristics. How do they differ from one another? Um, you know, why would you need one as opposed to the other? Uh, walk through that for me. 
Yeah, absolutely. So I've been, I've been, I guess, blessed to have the opportunity to build companies without taking any investment, which Smart Triage was one that we sold to a private equity firm. Uh, I've had the opportunity to raise venture capital funding and, uh, and I sold that business in 2019 to a, uh, a risk insurance company out of New York. So it's, it, you know, I've had a lot of experience in the fundraising piece. And what I'd say is, you know, private equity sort of is a one track mind, in my opinion, which is how do I squeeze a couple percentages of something that I purchase? So if I buy it at this, how do I get five or 10 maybe 15% out of it. So it's about squeezing the, the lemon or whatever it is a little bit harder, make it a little bit more efficient. But it's not about profoundly changing anything. It's just about adding efficiencies. Um, venture capital looks at companies that have a 10x potential. So, and oftentimes they don't like to come in at the very, very beginning, even though they're willing to come in, some of them on ideas, but most of them really want to see the product at least working. It doesn't have to generate revenue, but it has to be working. And they really care about how do I make 10 times more money? That's their singular focus. So if you don't give them an opportunity to make 10 times more money, they're not interested. So it's not going to be your idea to make a couple million bucks a year, hopefully, or whatever it is, it needs to be profound in terms of the delta between where they're coming and where they want to see it. And then angels are kind of these, these folks that have made a lot of money in their lives, and, and they tend to want to do good, and they want to fund things that have uh, meaning for them. And they tend to not worry so much about the end game as they worry about you know being able to be passionate and help someone that really truly cares about something. And I think hence the name angel investors. And uh, those, you know, that they, they, you, you know, they, they'll tend to come in with an idea that may, may not be as big, but maybe it does get to somewhere very special, but you got to find the folks that care about the problem that you're trying to solve in the angel realm. But you, you get this problem and you, three different tiers doesn't really matter on this part, but probably for this next question, but let's face it, you've got to have a story to tell. You've got to be able to wow. convince them. So how do you, how do you prepare this presentation for them to get? And I don't think that's any different than when I'm sitting in a, in my exam room across from a guest and saying, you need to have this to treat your, your glaucoma. Yeah. It, uh, well, and it's even, it goes back to your story about the, the device that you're trying to implement, right? Like you're not going to get anyone in that room to buy in if you go, this device costs $10,000 and we need to make money on this device, right? That's not going to move anybody. I mean, maybe someone, obviously, will move somebody, especially if you can compensate them for it. But if you really want to, to, to make a profound impact, you have to tell a story. And we've been, the way we process information as human beings is through stories. In fact, you know, 10,000 years ago, there's a guy, you know, named Homer that was telling, you know, stories about mythology to move people, to get them to go, to try to help one another, to, to change their societies, to move themselves forward, to elevate humanity and it's always been stories if you look at the eskimos and some of the uh the the tribal peoples they tell their children stories they don't tell them lessons they don't say don't do this don't do that they tell them stories about some made-up character that did this thing and had this problem happen because of it i.e pinocchio and all these things that you hear about so the most important thing that you could ever do if you want to be an entrepreneur and you want to make a difference and you want to build something is you have to do it from the heart. And then you have to tell that story from the heart because it really has to be something that moves somebody. And the story is the best way you could possibly do that. So 
If you're talk, if you want to build a device that could potentially impact someone and prevent blindness, you you better you better tell the story about why you're here and why you're doing it. And I and then obviously there's there's components of it. So you got your problem, which is your story. Then you have your solution, which is how you're going to make a difference. And then everyone wants to know how big is this opportunity? What's the potential? And then everyone's going to want to know exactly how you're going to achieve those goals. I'm going to do one, two, and three. And this is how it's going to work. This is how we're going to go to market. And then this is how we're going to make money. And then this is how much money we need to make that happen. And of course, we got this team that can do it. And here you go. And you lay out this storyline for them. And uh, you, know, you go through the peaks and the valleys. It gets kind of, it gets exciting when you talk about the problem that happened to your patient. And then it gets kind of boring when you get into the weeds of the revenue model. And then it picks back up when you talk about the team and why you want to achieve this goal. Do you find that um, you're telling these stories all the way through the process. I mean, because at some point it's, it's a, it's a collaboration maybe with just one other individual. And then at the next step, it's a collaboration with a funding group. And then the next step, it's a, it's a, it's a collaboration with your customers. So is that the way it kind of, I mean, and do you tell different stories to each one of them? You, you, you do. You, uh, I mean, obviously all the different stakeholders want to hear something slightly different. So you, you do have to have multiple stories, right? Um, but the idea is that you stay true to the message. So there's, a under, there's this underlying theme, like, you know, you're, it's a tragedy or it's a comedy, right? Or it's a, uh, you know, it, it's a drama of sorts. But the idea is that you, you always stay true to that narrative. And then there's micro narratives that, that kind of come off of this macro narrative. And I, I think when Homer tells, like when Homer writes the Odyssey or the Iliad, or when he sang it, he had a he had this macro narrative. And then inside the story, there's all these little stories. And so that's, that's how I think of, you know, building an organization. You're going to have a story to your partner. You're going to have a story to the patient. You're going to have a story or to the end consumer. You're going to have a story to the person that's going to put your device in their facilities, for example. So I think you're right, but I think ultimately it, you, you better tell a story to everyone and it better be within the same theme. Otherwise, people, it's called cognitive dissonance. They don't understand, oh, you said that there and you did this here and the message is not unified. So you tell these stories and you create some collaborations who have been some of the best collaborators you've worked with and why, and you can mention names. Man, that, I, okay. Well, I mean, I don't know if anyone will know the, the folks um, that I'll mention, but uh, a couple come to my mind, you know, uh, I'm, I've, I've been working with the gentleman Riyadh Citran. He's a computer scientist. And we built all our companies so far together. And I think the reason he is a, he's a big time thinker. Like you could put the guy in a room for hours and he won't come out because he's thinking about problems. And then I'm the guy that's like, let's go, let's go, let's go. And I think what's made the relationship so special is that we can balance each other out when we need to go. He, he defaults to me. He kind of gets it and understands that when, I need to slow down because I'm trying to go before we've really formulated this thing properly. He has a way of reeling me back in. And I think that's been, I think that's, that's what makes a, a team unique. It's like, if you have everyone with the same ideas or the same thoughts, then, you know, you, you might not be able to really think through all the complexities of the problem. So that's what I'd say. Yeah. Um, are there, are there points where you can look back and think, wow, I, I kind of, I missed an opportunity there. And how do you recover from that? Oh yeah. I actually, uh, one of my, one of my friends had asked me to 
um, join his organization. And um, he had a, he was solving um, a big problem with autistic care. And he wanted to be able to take those tests that they give you when you go to the pediatrician, he wanted to bring it online. And so for me, I was having a very difficult time because I didn't understand the space. I didn't, I don't, I don't know it, even though I'm, I'm very, I have a lot of empathy for that space. I just didn't understand it. And to me, I didn't think, you know, oh, maybe it'd be more difficult to do it online versus in person. And uh, he just, uh, he went from in a meet like uh, 18 months ago from just starting and he just announced the $250 million round from Ashton Kutcher, Chelsea Clinton, uh, you know, these big names right. at, at a billion dollar valuation. So he's essentially a unicorn right now. And uh, he asked me to join him. <laughs> I was going to be one of the the co-founders of that organization. So, and then, you know, we are X and good RX being a 3 billion. I feel like, you know, I had it, I had an opportunity to, for a couple of billion dollar opportunities, but uh, I, I just really, my, my focus is really to be able to do something that I'm truly passionate about. So even though I missed that opportunity, I don't know if I understood that space and that moved me as much as something else. So I always try to try to go towards that rather than the money, if you will. But it's a, it's a fun story to tell. Well, you know, you said earlier uh, that the stuff that you've done just because of not being moved never worked out well. So you would have ruined this yeah. whole thing for that guy. I think, I, think, I think he's probably really happy that I didn't join him. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's, it, it, he's a special guy. And he, he done, in, in 18 months, he went from zero to unicorn, which is, you know, Impressive. Not usual. No, it's not usual, but that's, it is impressive. Yes, for sure. So uh, one last, I guess, big question, um, which is a better answer? Yes or no? I think no. Really? Why, why, why do you think that? I say no, because you get, you get pulled in a lot of different directions. And I think to be able to say no to things, and I, this is for me because I'm, I'm like the guy you tell me, like, I need something or I want to do something. And I'm, I'm like, yeah, yes, 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 yes. For, so for me, no is a better answer for me because I have to teach myself to sometimes say no and focus on what I'm trying to do. I found myself pulled in a hundred different directions. And I realized when, when that has happened in my life, the outcomes weren't as good as when I got singular and focused. And for me, no is the answer um, that's personal to me that I need to learn to be able to do because I'm, I'm the yes man always. You know, when I was a kid, my friends were like, let's jump off a bridge, literally. And I, I was doing it, you know, without hesitation. So, uh, yeah, I, maybe you're the thrill seeker. Maybe that's what it actually is. Yeah, I'd like to do things that are that uh, make me uncomfortable. But um, and I think that's part of the entrepreneurial journey. Like there's been times, Ted, that I, I thought I was going to like I didn't have any more disposable income. Like I had to actually go back in the and I was just talking to Amir about this and a, a beautiful thing to be a an eye doctor, I can go back in the exam lane when I run out of money on my, you know, trying to do something crazy. And I've done that several times, you know, I've, I've bled myself completely dry, but thank goodness I was able to go back in, take care of patients and make money to, you know, to see the next thing come to fruition. So yes and no, I don't know. But uh, for me, I need to learn that lesson of no. I tell you, it's funny you tell that story about going back into the exam room. So your brother and Mike Rothschild and I were in Carrollton, Georgia, hatching out this crazy plan at one point. And <laughs> I mean, it was terrifying when I sat there and thought about it for a minute. And so we, we had taken a break and we were all, you know, well, at least Amir and I were calling back to the house just to say, hey, you know, we're still alive. It's seven o'clock at night. How, how's it all the kids and everything? And I was telling Kristen about this crazy harebrained idea we were coming out. And I said, I got to tell you, I'm kind of terrified about it. You know, I mean, I just, what if this all just doesn't work out? And she goes, well, you have a great profession. 
with a wonderful license. And if you lose everything, you can always go back into the exam room with somebody else that'll hire you and you'll have everything you need right there. And I go, all right, just not so bad. I had more resources. Than yeah. I knew what I knew what to do with, you know? So that's, what's amazing. Yeah. It's something, something we're, we're lucky to have. And, and I, I have to thank my parents for forcing me to go down this path because I think it's helped me and it put me in a place like a, a place that I became very passionate about and I can hopefully do some things to, to help our profession and the people we serve. So as we close this out, if there's one thing that the audience needs to hear Ali Kushneva say, and they need to remember, what is it? Don't be led by fear. That's, that's the biggest thing. That's, that's, the lesson I keep teaching myself every single day is fear is, is not something that should ever lead you. It, it's, a, it's a choice to be courageous and take that choice and, and, and have courage and face these daunting things that come into your life, not professionally, not necessarily just personally, but all the things that come into your life, just face them with a lot of courage. And I think you'll be you'll be happy for it. It makes life worth living. Well, I'm sure no one uh, is thinking that they hadn't spent wonderful time with you right now and just gotten so much out of it. And uh, I, I'm, I'm blessed to have spent some time with you, Ellie. And every time you and I get a chance like to get a coffee or something like together, it's always a special moment. So this for having a whole hour, that's amazing. And uh, thank right, you so man. much. You're one of the folks that I, I truly, truly uh, have a tremendous amount of respect and I love spending time with you. And uh, I'm just grateful to have this time with you. I appreciate it. Thanks, Ellie. quick thing before we finish up i'm gonna throw a little quick uh, something at the very end of this thing but today as you know is your brother's 50th birthday yeah and uh so i'm gonna just i'm gonna (laughs) say to everybody in the world today amir kashnev is november the 12th 2021 (laughs) he turned 5-0 today so he's such a baby though i mean he's four years younger than me it makes it makes me feel so old anyway oh i know i i sent him a message i talked to him yesterday and recorded a message with my little guy singing happy birthday and uh i can't believe it you know it's 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 awesome to see you know the man he's he is and uh i really mean all those things i I truly look up to amir and uh he's been like a guiding light for me yeah and for a lot of us and for a lot of us Make it a good day, brother. Talk to you soon. All right. Thanks. Thanks so much. My pleasure.